Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. First, a brief announcement. We're recording a live alpha chat next week on April 11th in Washington, D.C., at a bar. The people from the NPR podcast Planet Money will also be there recording live that night, including Cardiff Garcia. That's the former host of this show. I read your emails. You miss him. I'm not hurt. He's a great guy. Raghunam Rajan will be there too. He used to be the chief economist of the IMF and the governor of the Reserve Bank of India. If you would like to come, email events.ftalphaville at ft.com. Okay. The thing about Yanis Varoufakis is he's a really thoughtful economist. Before he became the finance minister of Greece in 2015 and had a six-month running televised argument with Wolfgang Schäuble, that was the finance minister of Germany, Yanis Varoufakis was known to those of us who covered economics as one of the best accredited critics of mainstream economics. He started a PhD program at the University of Athens that forced its students to learn not just math, but also the history of economic thought. Alphaville got to talk to both Varoufakis's, the political intellectual and the academic economist. This is Alpha Chat, a project from the Financial Times and the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. I'm Brendan Greeley. Thanks this week to OMFIF, the official monetary and financial institutions forum. They hosted this week's conversation at One Moorgate Place in London. Alphaville's Jemima Kelly and Isabella Kaminska sat down with Giannis Varoufakis. He started a new transnational political party. They call themselves Radical Europeanists Union without deflation or austerity. He talked about how modern Greece actually became a political entity, why France is the thermostat of Europe, and yes, about the photographs in Paris match. We picked up the story where we left off in 2015. Here's Giannis. Immediately after my resignation, I received uh, petitions from uh, all sorts of people, members of parliament, voters, to start a political party in Greece, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. What was I going to say to voters? Um, we failed. Uh, vote for us again to do it correctly this time. Uh, but very soon after that, I realized that uh, what we had started in Greece with our, with our opposition to those toxic bailouts had meaning for people beyond Greece. And I realized that when I was in France, when I was in Germany, for that matter, because a very significant portion of Europeans recognized that what happened in Greece was a precursor to the combination of socialism for the financial sector and austerity for everyone else that was eventually going to transplant itself to France, create the Gilets Jaunes, and the waves of Euroscepticism and the political monsters are now rising up. So, cut a long story short. Very soon after that resignation, uh, we started working on creating the first transnational democratic movement in Europe, the purpose of which was to have, for the first time, a single agenda for Europe, economic, social, uh, political, ethical agenda for Europe. Radical Europeanists, we call our, ourselves. And Radical Europeanists? Yes. What does that mean? Well, it means that we have this attitude and this belief 
that the only way of being a genuine European and Europeanist, if you really care about Europe, you have to oppose those who are running Europe today. Not because you're a Eurosceptic, not because you are a Matteo Salvini or a Nigel Farage, but because you think that these people are with their insistence on business as usual, when business cannot be maintained as usual, they're doing enormous harm, like the Weimar Republic was doing to Germany, to the liberal establishment in Germany. And the result is the deflationary forces that breed political monsters. And we need to come up with uh, an alternative agenda. Uh, so we worked on this alternative agenda between late 2015 and 2017. The movement was called DiEM25, DiEM as in Carpe DiEM, but it's an acronym, the Democracy in Europe Movement. Within a few weeks, we had 100,000 members across Europe uh, and very dedicated members. So we worked together on economic policy, on what we call the New Deal for Europe. How do we resolve the public debt crisis? What do we do about banking? How do we boost significantly and macroeconomically significantly and environmentally significantly investment by two, two and a half trillion euros um, over a period of five years? What do we do about poverty? Uh, what is our view about the democratization of the European Union, which is currently a democracy-free zone in our view? Uh, and at some point, we had a document that um, was a result of a great deal of debate between us. We voted for it. We had experts involved in it. And we had rank and file, grassroots members. And then we realized that nobody gives a damn about documents and policy agendas unless you put them to voters. So for the last year, uh, together with uh, a number of other political actors across Europe, we issued a statement, a call, an open call, saying, does anyone want to come and discuss our agenda? with us and not necessarily adopt it, but discuss it. And about 11, 12 political movements did across Europe, from Poland to Portugal, in France, in Italy. Uh, and we created what we call the European Spring, which is our list that is running across Europe. We decided to disrupt politics. So we have a German running in Greece. I'm running in Germany. We have an Italian running in France. We have a French person running in Italy. Uh, because if you're going to do transnational politics, you have to do transnational politics. Don't we need some sort of kind of European demos in order for some European democracy to work? Isn't, don't we need some kind of national, sorry, transnational European identity? Does that exist? How can a democracy function without a demos? But the demos, whether we're talking about Britain or Greece or Colombia, is a work in progress. It's not something that pre-exists democracy. You are creating the demos through collective action, which is giving democracy a chance. And the more you exploit that chance, the stronger the demos becomes and the more it looks like a demos. I come from a country that uh, comprises citizens who have this great uh, you know, delusion of grandeur from ancient Greece, like you do in Britain here. You know, the people ask me, what's the similarity between Brexit and Grexit? I say, well, not many similarities because they're very, very different events. But the one similarity we have as a people is we are um, caught up in a sense of self-pity as a result of feeling incredibly important and superior because of our <laughs> grand past, while at the same time feeling miserable and weak and completely helpless. Uh, so the, the point I'm, I'm making is that we have this view that we you know, are descendants of Sophocles and Aristotle and Alexander the Great and all that. But in reality, uh, when Greece was constituted as a modern state, 
Athens had a population of 5,000 people who all spoke Albanian. So we built up the demos. The Greek demos, which now exists and is behind the Greek democracy, was constructed. It was a result of collective action. It was the result of culture, of art, of literature, of politics, of doing things together. Uh, so the question we have to ask ourselves as Europeans, do we have enough in common in terms of our culture and our civilization to bind each other in a process of collective action that creates a European democracy. I think we do. And I was convinced of that when I was living in Texas. Because, you know, when you live in, te- in the middle of Texas and you meet a Norwegian, a Brit, a German and a Fra- French person, you realize that, my goodness, we are identical. But you said that democracy isn't, we don't have democracy in Europe at the moment. And what, why would you say that? Well, we have democratic states. We fought for our democracies. When I was young, I lived in a fascist dictatorship. We had the secret police break down our door. I know exactly what the difference between democracy and dictatorship is. Uh, And I'm very pleased we have democratic states. But unfortunately, in the process of creating the European Union, we have shifted all important decisions away from the realm of our sovereign democratic nation state into a democracy-free zone, a black hole in Brussels, which was constructed to be a democracy-free zone. It's not a failure. It's an architectural design. It was constructed as the administration of a cartel. And a cartel administrations are not meant to be democratic. I mean, you know, uh, OPEC is a cartel. The first name for the European Union was the European Communities of Coal and Steel. It was a cartel. The point was to limit competition, to set prices, to set price cost margins, and to divide between big business the benefits of this cartel. Now, that, of course, has evolved since then, but not as much as it should have. There is still a continuity between that original cartel and now, and you can see that. When I first went to Brussels as the Minister of Finance, uh, I had Volkan Schäuble in front of me saying that elections cannot be allowed to change economic policy. And his argument was not as uh, absurd as it sounded at first, because he said, I have a mandate, you have a mandate, our mandates clash. So it is as if no one has a mandate. Well, if no one has a mandate, what on earth are we doing? And the answer is, we don't have a democracy if nobody has a mandate and our mandates are clashing against one another. That's something that uh, Theresa May never understood when she called for an election, which of course she didn't even win, uh, in order to get a mandate to um, negotiate with the European Union. Once you move into the democracy-free zone of the European Union, there are no mandates. There's just raw power. And the problem with that is that when you don't have democratic sovereignty, when you don't have democracy at the EU level, the EU is not legitimate. And during the good times, cartels are pretty good at distributing gains. The the reason why we need democracy is because cartels are not good at distributing burdens during the bad times. And that's where you have the fragmentation and the rise of Euroscepticism and xenophobia and all that. So you're proposing some sort of radical alternative, which is interesting because you've called yourself an erratic Marxist. And one of the things that you used to explain that was your perspective and the way in which you think that the best way to challenge the establishment is to expose its internal contradictions rather than to try to establish alternatives. So I'm interested that you're now kind of going towards the idea of establishing some sort of alternative. And I wonder if that was as a response to some criticism, potentially from the radical left, of you as finance minister in Greece that you maybe weren't radical enough. Do you think that you've shifted that view that you should kind of expose the internal contradictions rather than trying to kind of create an alternative? Well, this is a very loaded question, a very complex one. Let me say that 
when I say I'm a Marxist, I understand the world, capitalism, in terms that uh, are mainly informed by Marx, but also by many other thinkers uh, from the whole spectrum of uh, the ideological positioning of different philosophers. So I understand uh, the price mechanism very well through Hayek. Uh, Without Keynes, you don't understand the the failures of uh, capitalism to convert idle savings into investment. But Marx's great contribution, and I think that this is a contribution that has um, infected in a good way, the minds of liberals as well. I mean, Joseph Schumpeter, who is the doyen of uh, the libertarians and those who defend even monopoly power as uh, the well from which innovation comes out. Uh, Schumpeter was thinking in terms of Marx. He, he didn't agree with him politically, but his way of understanding capitalism was completely Marxist, and he himself says so. So, briefly, if you look at Marx's celebration of globalization in the first four pages of the Communist Manifesto, there can be no um, uh, competitor to that text. Uh, But he's celebrating it in order to say that, yes, capitalism is liberating us from prejudice, from superstition, from an incapacity to create the goods that society needs in order to go beyond moralizing and to actually provide for its people. But at the same time, it is a system that produces contradictions, just like it produces gadgets and iPhones. He didn't say that, but that's what he meant. It creates impossible new levels of and qualities of depravity and poverty, while at the same time producing immense wealth. And in the end, when people ask me, but who do you think is the greatest uh, threat to capitalism? And I give a very Marxist answer. It's not the left. The left you know, we have proven ourselves to be absolutely inept. Capitalism is capitalism's greatest foe. It produces all the gadgets and the technologies that are making corporate capitalism unsustainable. So this um, great epic drama that is capitalism, a system, a dynamic that produces fantastic technologies that can liberate us, but at the same time are enslaving us, independently of whether we are the capitalists or the workers. That, for me, is a fantastic way of understanding the world we've been living in in the last 200, 300 years. But Marx is not enough, because Marx was very wedded in Adam Smith and the classical liberal political tradition political economy tradition. Uh, So he did not have the radicality of somebody like Keynes, who understood that this same system um, can produce uh, periods of depression that are not redemptive. In Marx, every crisis is redemptive. Every recession contains the seeds of the next upswing. Keynes, because of his experiences of the 1930s, said, well, that's not necessarily the case. So, okay, back to your question about um, my critics. Look, everything I just said, I believe in. It's Maybe it's of interest to some people. Maybe it's very boring for other people. But it is more or less irrelevant to what I was trying to do in 2015. In 2015, the only reason why you know me as a politician is because I stood on a platform that had a lot of support both from Marxists and neoliberals. And the reason was because it was a a meeting point of the two traditions. I was saying that what happened with Greece was a crime against logic. We have a case of insolvency, the most bankrupt state in the Eurozone. And how do we try to solve this problem? By giving the largest loan in human history to that bankrupt state on conditions of shrinking its income by 25%. You don't need to be Marxist, liberal, Keynesian in order to understand that this cannot end well. Actually, you don't need to be more than eight, nine years of age to know that this cannot end well. So I was elected for a very simple reason, debt restructuring, both private debt, 
we have you know a banking system labor under 50% 52% of non performing loans and you recapitalize that you take money from taxpayers and you give to those banks without cleansing them of the npls how clever is that i mean do i have to be an erratic marxist an erratic supertarian hayekian in order to disagree with that where the radical left attacked me was in two, two respects firstly because i was not advocating socialism and secondly because i was not advocating a exit you know a left wing exit from the the eurozone i've lost a lot of friends from the left on this but uh, i remain steadfast that that was the correct position to take for two reasons firstly during a major deflationary bout like we had in the 1930s or now any talk about socialism is silly Why? Because the only political forces that gather strength during those deflationary era, uh, periods are the fascists. Uh, look at the 1930s. It was not the, le- the left was very strong in the 1930s, in Germany, in France, everywhere. And yet they ended up in the gulag alongside the liberals <laughs> and the Jews and the gypsies and so on. Huh? Um, similarly today, when you have the cacophony of racism rising up Uh, through the deflationary woodwork of the European Union, uh, for us to have a discussion about, you know, oh, yeah, let's celebrate the, the fact that capitalism is having uh, a spasm and let's imagine socialism, I'm, I'm just refusing to be part of this. It's too dangerous. Uh, secondly, regarding Lexit, the left-wing support for the disintegration of the European Union, I fought against... Greece entering the European Union, the European Common Market in the 1970s as a young activist. I don't regret it. In the 1990s, late 1990s, as an um, academic, young academic economist, I was writing fiery articles against Greece's entry into the Eurozone. I do not regret it. But as a former mathematician, I believe in the profound difference between static analysis and dynamic analysis. It's one, to think, one thing to say we shouldn't have been in here. It's quite another to say let's get out. Because if you get out, you don't necessarily end up where you would have been had you not entered. <laughs> uh, so take Britain, for instance. Okay, there would be an argument for not entering the European common market in the 1970s. But after 40 years, 43 years, whatever it is, of having been interwoven within the institutional framework of the single market, um, the common market, um, the social market of the European Union, getting out is catastrophic for the weaker members of society that the left should want to protect. So to my left-wing critics, who say that I'm not Marxist enough, I say to them, well, I don't know. What would Marx be thinking if he was around today? I think the way that you um, refuse to kind of fit into, I think you, it's quite refreshing that you, you're not particularly kind of tribal in the way that you think about politics, it seems to me anyway. And um, in, in a recent article in The Economist, you said that if, if ever you thought of yourself as a politician, then shoot me, which is yes. interesting because you are <laughs> launching a political party at the moment. Um, but what do you see yourself as? In, in, the, um, in the cover of um, And the Week Must Suffer What They Must, you've quoted, again, I think it's The Economist, calling you um, a global celebrity. And um, I wondered kind of like how you felt about the kind of the cult of celebrity that kind of slightly surrounds you. I mean, you've said in the past that you regretted the, um, the Parry match, the famous yes. uh, Parry match. Yes. Um, Very much so. Really? Absolutely. What? It was an awful decision. What, in, in what sense? No, but look, you, you mentioned the, the global celebrity. Yes, yeah? exactly. Yeah. In the cover. I didn't choose that cover. 
Okay. <laughs> okay. I would not have put it on. You know how publishers work. Yes. Okay. They say, oh, no, 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 no. And in the end, they didn't even run it by me. Let me give you another example of something that distressed me. Adults in the Room, my next book, uh, the subtitle. I didn't choose that. Oh, really? My struggle against uh, the European establishment, I would never have chosen that. Um, but they said, oh, no, we have to have it because of marketing purposes and so on and so forth. It, and I thought, uh, imagine if you translate this into German, it's Mein Kampf. I know, I was <laughs> just going to say. <laughs> so, uh, yes, you're right. I mean, but this is not me. I, wouldn't, okay. I never would have, would have imagined that. Sometimes, for the purposes of marketing, you accept uh, you know, the superior wisdom of your publisher and of the people who do the marketing. But I'm not happy with that. This is not one of my proudest okay, moments. Okay, no, that's, that's fair enough. Another person who recently... So I saw there was a picture of you with Pamela Anderson earlier this week. Yes. Pamela Anderson is now backing um, your new Democracy in Europe. How did that come about? That's kind of Well, isn't it interesting that you mentioned Pamela? <laughs> because in the same event, we had people like Noam Chomsky. We had people like Brian Eno. We had uh, uh, people like Slavoj Žižek. We had a fantastic... Um, black uh, woman from Portugal, Joacine Moreno, who um, stood up and spoke about her experiences as an illegal migrant from Ghana, I believe. Um, no, Senegal. And you're asking me about Pamela Anderson. Well, she was actually uh, on the flyer. Yes, she was. She was on the flyer. Uh, so and where she are the was, others? Well, probably because I didn't. Rec- I, they weren't as recognisable. No, 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 exactly. You, so so you recognise saw- Pamela Anderson. <laughs> yes. So, now, I, 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 I'm a big the fan. The question there, therefore is, Given that Pamela Anderson herself, completely of her own volition, decided to come and support us, um, should we have barred her from coming in? Oh, God. Ah, you see, because we we have received a lot of flack for that. And her own explanation of why she she was there was absolutely disarming and charming. What did she say? How did she put it to you? Well, the the way she put it is, look, um, for reasons of a historical accident, uh, I'm recognizable. I could be sitting in Malibu, having a good life, but I, I decide that this world needs changing and I'm going around the world finding causes that I can support and I'm doing it. And we say, come along, in the same way we said to everybody else. And she was obviously, she got involved in the Gilets Jaunes in, in France as well. She did not support them and she did not get involved. What she said was that their demonization by the establishment has to be rethought. She was very nuanced and very careful in what she said. What's your view on the Gilets Jaunes? Uh, I mean, you obviously kind of predicted that this sort of disruption would happen. They are the unruly children of austerity. Some of them misbehave very, very badly. Some of them are fascists. Some of them are anti-Semites. Some of them are purely appalling. But that is what happens every time uh, society has a spasm and there is uh, a, a spontaneous eruption of anger on the streets. Uh, the question is, why is it happening? France is uh, very special in that way. Uh, I like to think of France as the, th- the thermostat of Europe. When the temperature goes up because of anger, because of discontent, France is the one that erupts first, whether it is 1968 or you know 300 years back, even with the French Revolution. Um, a lot of what goes on in the streets of Paris, in the Commune and before that, um, is suspect. A lot of it cannot be defended, especially the violence. But the, in my estimation, and you mentioned that, I've been saying since 2012-2013 that this dystopic experiment in Greece of very harsh, to put it in British economic terms, contractional contraction, 
the opposite of expansionary contraction, which you had here in this country, that this is going to create uh, a lot of um, anger. And this anger at some point is going to explode. It exploded at very various times in different countries. Eventually, when uh, President Macron decided to Germanize the French labor markets without having the German levels of industrial investment, <laughs> uh, without getting anything back from Merkel, in the bargain that he wanted to to make with her uh, to, f- to create a federal budget, um, he, he got his comeuppance. You've praised Macron in the past for um, during the Greek crisis for kind of reaching out when he was economy minister um, and for kind of trying to be pragmatic about finding some sort of solution. Do you still see him in such a kind of favourable light? Is he a kind of friend of European kind of democracy? Oh, I'm very critical of his tenure as president. I still think he's a nice person, but that does, that's neither here nor there. Uh, you know, when you are the president of France, you've got to be judged on the basis of your policies and on, on, on your impact on a Europe that needs a positive impact. And his impact has been very negative. He made a a, a crucial error, which is in a way similar to Theresa May's error. Theresa May accepted catastrophically the two-phase negotiating process that Michel Bernier imposed upon her. Phase one, you give me everything I want. Phase two, have a discussion about what you want. So that was Bernier's masterstroke and Theresa May's uh, grave error. In the case of Macron, Macron, uh, it was self-inflicted because he gets elected and his plan was, uh, from the beginning, and I know that because we had discussed this before he became president, to Germanize French labor and the French national budget to push the deficit below 3% for the first time in years. And then after that, six months, eight months later, to go to Angela Merkel and say, look, I Germanized France, now let's move towards a kind of federation for the Eurozone with a federal budget that is macroeconomically significant, that uh, uh, is supported by a genuine bank deposit insurance scheme, by unemployment insurance that is not simply a scheme for troika-like loans to countries with higher unemployment, but involves a degree of surplus recycling. And I remember saying to him before he was president, when we had this conversation once, uh, when he was economy minister and I had resigned, I said, look, if you go to Merkel, once you've Germanized France and you say, okay, now you want, I want you to federalize the euros, and she will say, thanks, but no thanks. This it has to take place on a quid pro quo basis. Negotiate this. And also, she has a point because, remember, he was elected in the spring, in June, whenever it was. She had elections in September. He should have said immediately to her, look, in the federal election, you've got to run with this agenda of a federal Europe. And if you do that and you win, then I'll Germanize France in the, in the meantime. And we'll work together. But he didn't. She ran in the federal parliament election without a mention of Europe. So she didn't have a mandate to go to the Bundestag and say, now let's have a federal budget and a federal minister and a common asset and blah, blah, blah. And the other thing, of course, was that she didn't even win the election. <laughs> so Macron was left with uh, all the negative impacts of Germanizing France without any of the positives. So he's become part, part of the problem. And now if you compare and contrast, it's very interesting to do this. I did it. It was quite uh, insightful. If you compare his Sorbonne speech, if you remember, he gave this quite interesting speech immediately after becoming president. If you compare it with the letter he wrote recently, a few weeks ago, addressing the citizens of Europe with his ambition for Europe, there's no comparison. It's not written by the same person. Uh, there's no real ambition left in him. So 
he wasted his political capital within a year and a half. And how much of that is to do with the Gilets Jaunes? A lot, because the Gilets Jaunes are the reaction to the lack of prospects. So when you, you increase carbon taxes, diesel fuel goes up. In regions of France that resemble Greece, that are depressed, and these people don't have any public investment, they don't have any, anything to look forward to, and they hear at the same time that the wealth tax for rich Parisians is coming down, and they see nothing happening in Europe that will stop the constant, permanent, slow-burning austerity in France. Because when you, when you bind together the French economy with the German economy, from an economic point of view, if you look at it, the capital ratio in Germany is always higher than in, in France. So when they are bound together by the same currency, the only way that you can maintain this equilibrium is by having permanent austerity in France in order to suppress aggregate demand with a fiscal compact and all that. So the only thing that these small greases are dispersed around France, the only thing they can look forward to is more depression. At some point, they rebelled. So it's Les Miserables again, isn't it? I mean, it's the same old story, which is why they are... So, like you say, they are the barometer of Europe. Yeah, th the thermostat. I the call thermostat, it. sorry. <laughs> yes, correct. Because the thermostat goes bling. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> the barometer doesn't. You've, you've spoken before about um, the idea of, um, we write quite a lot about Bitcoin and blockchain and crypto on Alphabet, as you might be aware. I and, am aware. I read you folks. <laughs> so, um, but you've talked about, um, we're quite uh, skeptical on, on the blockchain, which you've been quite um, bullish on in the past. Well, I think you've proposed you proposed the idea of a parallel currency that would run on on some sort of blockchain. Even though you also have said that the idea of this the, of Bitcoin as apolitical money, that the idea of apolitical money full stop is a is a fantasy. So I wondered what the benefit of blockchain would be. Well, when I, when I first studied the code of blockchain back in 2011, so do do you code? I'm just curious. I, I used to. Oh, oh, fantastic. I used to. That's more than most people who talk about blockchain. Yeah, I started, my first, my first degree was in mathematics. But then, of course, you know, theory took over. Uh, but I, I, I did used to, to code. So I can read, I can read code. Don't ask me to create anything uh, innovative. You could launch an ICO if you needed to. <laughs> I think so. But I wouldn't do it because I don't believe in it. Um, so when I lo first looked at the code and I looked at how the, the, the algorithm worked, I was fascinated. And the first comment I made was, this is a brilliant solution to a problem we haven't discovered yet. I didn't buy the stuff about, you know, a, a non-state currency, an apolitical currency. Why? Because uh, my macroeconomics tells me that uh, um, the value of a currency comes from the capacity to extinguish taxes. And uh, the supply of money must be politically controlled. Always. Otherwise, you know, you're going to be recession prone and depression prone. But when I was thinking back then in 2011, how can we create more fiscal space for nation states within the Eurozone? The idea of a parallel payment system started coming to me. And that has nothing to do with, um, with blockchain. Right? The idea there is that you use the tax system and in particular the interface of the tax office in order initially to allow for multilateral cancellation of debts. So if the state owes money to the private sector and the private sector owes money to the private sector and the private sector owes money to the state, uh, you create a reserve account under every tax file number. Uh, you can tell the Greek state, for instance, you know, it takes more than 24 months to repay suppliers, pharmaceutical suppliers for the Greek NHS. Uh, you can say, look, you can wait for two years or I can actually type the number in there and I give you a PIN number and you can transfer these numbers or part of those numbers to any other tax file number. So you can 
provide liquidity to one of your own suppliers, one supplier to another supplier, or to a worker, or to whoever it is that they owe money to. And to the extent that these people must pay taxes, they can use their own PIN numbers to pay the state. And that way, you create a lot more fiscal space uh, without bypassing or violating any of the rules of the Eurozone. And then later on, you can actually allow people, especially in an era of zero interest rates, you allow people to transfer money from their commercial bank account to that tax file number related reserve account. And that system also provides liquidity. And it's a, it increases competition for the commercial banks. Okay, so, so far, no mention of blockchain. Right. But as a Greek, <laughs> one thing we learn not to do from a very young age is to trust the Greek state. So how do we know that the state has not created um, many of these credit units uh, to the extent that they won't be able to redeem them or that to the extent that its tax take in the future is going to be seriously depleted with all those discounts. And that's when the blockchain idea comes in. Because if this system, this parallel payment system, is transparent through a blockchain-like algorithm, therefore allowing all citizens to know exactly how much liquidity there is in the system without ending the anonymity of payments, then that's brilliant because that's what you need in order to have trust in the system, to have transparency. So I started designing this system for the Greek case for when I was going to be in, in, in government uh, and while I was in government in a way that utilizes the aspects of the blockchain that permits transparency with anonymity in order to create the trust that is necessary uh, amongst the Greek population. And I think, I really seriously to this very day think that every member state of the Eurozone should have one. A parallel currency? Yes, not parallel currency, parallel payment system. Mm -hmm. This is all Euros. And the beauty of it is that it bolsters the Eurozone. If, it, if you create more fiscal space, and you see, this money cannot exit Italy or Greece because it's captured within the tax system of the nation. So you create um, Euros which cannot escape. Just to explain it more simply, are you basically proposing a system that has effective capital controls on it? Not effective, full-blown capital controls on it. Right. Uh, so you are creating liquidity within the fiscal uh, system that allows a lot, of, a lot more breathing space for the private sector and for the public sector without any uh, threat, any, any possibility that this is going to lead to a capital flight. Unlike what's been happening with hundreds of billions of euros going from Italian bank accounts exactly. to Germany. Look at tar Italy's target too. I think we're nearly running out of time. So I personally was just thinking we are effectively not trusting parliament anymore. Everyone says it's a shambles, it's, we're emerging market here in the UK. I was just wondering what the Greek perspective is on Brexit, because we here domestically hear all, you know, hear all sorts of things about what we are perceiving. But it's very rare that we hear about what, what other countries are thinking about us. These are difficult times for the people of Britain. So I'm going to finish with a silver lining. It is a good thing that you have this paralysis from at least one perspective. I have this view. Uh, by the way, I, I have a great deal of affinity for Britain. I mean, I spend a lot of time here and I consider this to be a second home. So I'm speaking as a friend, not, not as somebody who gloats, unlike the French uh, president and the others. My worry for a while now about Britain is that you have a broken down business model. What Mark Carney said is right. You depend on the kindness of strangers. You have a large current account surplus. What is it now? 5%, maybe 55 uh, so you need you need constant injections of capital 
and injections that are not necessarily productive. The model of low skills, low wages, little regulation is one which is perpetuating low productivity, bad quality jobs, zero hour, hour contracts. And that is independent of the European Union. You also have a broken down constitutional system. So take the Irish backstop that we are talking so much about. Well, why are we really talking about it? It's because the Belfast Agreement, the Good Friday Agreement, um, it was never completed. It was wonderful that it happened because it did away with the troubles. It happened because both London and Dublin gave up on demanding complete sovereignty. There is a wonderful opportunity in Northern Ireland to establish joint sovereignty, to move beyond the notion of one state, one nation, one language, one sovereignty. Yeah? But that has never been completed. This is why the DUP is managing to hold the rest of the country to ransom. Scotland remains an issue. But the greatest issue for me, from a constitutional perspective, is England. Because uh, Tony Blair's devolution left England out. Tonight I'm going to Sheffield. Uh, I've, I've traveled a lot in the north of England. Um, also the coastal areas of Bournemouth, Clacton and Sea and so on. It's a different England there. The, the people there, in their crushing majority, feel disenfranchised. They don't feel that... They don't have the pride that the Scots have or the Welsh have in their assembly, in their, in their parliament. So you need to have a serious conversation about uh, how to bring the English back into the fold of a functioning British democracy. So what was this, this silver lining that you were saying? The silver lining is that, you see, for years now, uh, the British elites have been perpetuating the myth that Britain is fantastic, that there's no problem, you have a fantastic constitution that works brilliantly, that uh, your economy is going gangbusters compared to Europe, uh, which was going through its Eurozone crisis and so on and so forth. Well, this crisis is, is a wake-up call in response to the call for a people's referendum, a uh, people's vote, a second people's vote. My view is, I'm all for it, but first you need a very serious people's debate about your business model, your constitutional arrangements, and in conjunction with this, but not separately, your future relationship with the EU. Now, to have this, we need to start from the realization that your electoral system is uh, broken. It produces parties in the parliament that are not representing uh, the, the popular sentiment, that uh, regulations of the rules of the House of Commons need to be rethought. The one interesting point that Brexiteers have been making, including my friend Norman Lamont and others, is about the sovereignty of the House of Commons and how it has to be restored. The Brexiteers have uh, trampled upon the sovereignty of the House of Commons. They didn't even give the House of Commons the opportunity to draft or redraft the transformation of EU law into British law. The silver lining is an opportunity to realize that you really have to do a major rethink about your business model, your constitutional arrangements, and your relationship with the rest of the world. That is not to be scoffed at. It is a wonderful opportunity. You can use it. Now, I mentioned before the commonality that we Greeks and you Brits have, that we think simultaneously very highly of ourselves and very lowly of ourselves. A crisis like this one is an opportunity to, to have a cool rethink. I'm an ancient historian. I studied ancient history. And of course, I know that democracy did not end well in Greece the first time around. There seems to be a sort of quagmire in many situations when, when you get too many political factions. And perhaps that's where we are again. So Democracy is a very fragile flower. It's very easy to destroy. You just step on it and you kill it. I think that what the youngsters now demonstrating on Fridays about the environment are reminding us that 
our environment and our democracy are equally fragile. You mentioned the end of democracy in, uh, in ancient Athens. Well, that happened because the economy collapsed as a result of a major loss in a war against the, the Spartans. So we have to beware and we have to be vigilant and we have to keep nurturing that very fragile flower. Otherwise, it can easily be trampled upon. Well, thank you so much for coming onto our podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance and Amy Keene from the Financial Times. Please email us, alphachat at ft.com, for any reason at all. Thanks to Gareth Sutcliffe from the UK. He wrote, and I am serious, the politest dissenting email I have ever received. If you work in the news, you get a lot of emails. Most people don't know how to tell you you're wrong without being nasty. Gareth said we let the side down a bit on our Brexit show. We didn't include any leave voices. He personally favored a European Free Trade Association exit. That's the Norway option. He does not agree that the English are unaware of the Irish or of the present status of their historical empire. That is all fair criticism. We did not have any levers on our show. Booking is tricky. You want a good conversation. You want some tension. This time, we did not want to relitigate Brexit. Gareth, thank you. You are a fine and decent composer of emails. For my part, I am going to be a little smug because I knew Giannis Varoufakis before he was Giannis Varoufakis. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryan, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.